For some 30 years, African-American travelers relied on a guide called the Negro Motorist Green Book. This was during the segregation era in the U.S., and the guide listed places that would serve black customers along the way because, of course, not everyone would. We're talking gas stations and garages and motels and restaurants. The writer and broadcaster Alvin Hall has driven these sections of the country because he wanted to see what was left of the businesses in the Green Book. And he wanted to talk to the people who used it as a way to visit family and then get back home safely. Today in Radio West, Hall is joining us to talk about his journeys and to tell some of the stories that he found along the way. This question kept coming back. What was it like to drive in those days? And do those fears ever go away? Join us after this. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. There was a survey in the NAACP magazine in 1947 that estimated not more than 6% of what it called the nation's better hotels and motels would welcome black travelers. 6%. But the writer and broadcaster Alvin Hall says in a new book that this reality didn't keep African Americans from venturing onto the roadways. If you were black and you wanted to get in your car and go someplace far away at this time in the country of segregation and pervasive racism, you had to have a plan, a strategy. Where could you get gas? Where could you get a meal? And you had to know when to get off the road. And as terrifying as that all sounds, Hall told us there was this attribute, this quality African Americans took with them when they traveled. He called it mother wit. Mother wit is a term that exists in the black community for an almost second sense of the world. You see reality, but you're able to use humor. You're able to use irony in very subtle ways to somewhat offset the threat or reduce it. The stories in Alvin Hall's book come from a podcast he produced where he took this road trip from north to south using a travel guide called the Negro Motorist Green Book. He talked to Sidney Cates in New Orleans. During his long drives from New Orleans to California, he would often go with his wife and his mother and his mother-in-law. They're all light-skinned black people. He tells the amusing story of their stopping at a service station and wanting to use the bathroom. And they had a big brown dog laying across the the entranceway to the service station. And my mother asked the guy who was was the service station manager, was the dog going to worry them? And... Say no, no, ma'am, you don't worry nobody but So they go past the dog, use the bathroom. Then they come out, and Sydney says, well, I think I have to go to the bathroom. My mother was laughing. She said, you better hurry up and, and, and use the restroom before that dog finds out you're black, <laughs> finds out you're <laughs> That that was a comical situation, but yes. it, it, it actually happened, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you, you ran into those kinds of things. It really reflects how they have this second sense of survival, but also being able to laugh at these difficult times. Figuring out how to deal with basic human needs was part of the experience of driving the Green Book. As Hall heard from Jesse Turner Jr., who was stuck in the back seat of their big car with his brothers. And their parents would try to discourage him from drinking too much fluid because that meant they'd have to stop and go to the bathroom. 
But his family was rather ingenious. They got small urinals for each child. We'd be in the back seat, and you'd have the old car that had the, the hump in the back, mm -hmm. which would get kind of hot sometimes. But you could worm your way. You were small. Little mm -hmm. kids, you could stand on, sit on the seats, uh, kind of half stand, and use urinals. Now, that didn't work. They were really forward thinking because they really didn't want to stop because the risk of stopping was, in their perception of traveling, greater than the problems of having their kids use urinals in the car. I think people who are survivors and African Americans are survivors over the long history of Jim Crow and segregation and oppression and limited rights in America. I think that one of the characteristics is not being trapped by the past. You look back at these situations and you survive them, but you also find the humor in them. You have used your intelligence, you've used your mother wit, your understanding of someone else's perception of you, someone else's misperception of a situation to give you a privilege or help you survive a situation. It's really about not being trapped by the darkness of the past or the difficulty of the situation. It's recognizing that something in you gave you the skill set to survive that difficulty and that skill set is often mother wit. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Alvin Hall is joining us talking about driving the Green Book. That's the name of his book. And Hall said when he first learned about the Green Book, he wondered how it was he had never known about the publication. And on his road trip, he said he heard that same sentiment a lot. When I met Dr. Evelyn Nettles in Nashville, and she said, I never heard of the Green Book. I didn't know until I went to the movie. Well, you Literally, can always catch that's right. You I, didn't know about I the Green Book? I didn't know about the Green Book. Are you a black woman And in I'm America? a black woman, and I'm an educated black woman <laughs> in America, and I did not know that. And I said, Michael, do you remember? I so identified with that statement, except I had discovered it way before the movie. In my case, I didn't know about the Green Book because in my life in the Florida Panhandle, we didn't need the Green Book. We didn't travel for vacations mm -hmm. like many African-American families. When we traveled, it was to visit another relative for maybe three or four days. For many African-Americans, you had a word-of-mouth network. So mm -hmm. you had relatives who had done those trips, and they would share that information with you before you got on the road. Or you went a road that you always knew, back to Mississippi, mm -hmm. back to Georgia, that you knew like the back of your hand and you know the places where to stop. You knew the places where you could pull off to the side of the road and not be hassled. So I think a lot of African-Americans didn't know about it for that reason. But then integration occurred. There was no need for people to have these guides, or at least they thought so. Because enough of the big hotel chains, enough restaurants on the road were open enough so that your likelihood of encountering what Victor Hugo Green calls aggravations were reduced. They were still there, but the knowledge of them went back to being word of mouth. So if you drove, for example, from where we lived near Tallahassee, Florida, to Lake City, my uncle's son knew from word of mouth hmm. where not to stop to try to buy gas because he knew that man at that service station would never sell you gas. There are three generations that you explore um, and get at in, in the book. There's the Jim Crow generation, of course, that experienced this firsthand. There's the post-Jim Crow generation. And then there's the contemporary generation and you're trying to sort of get at what that experience was like for all three of these. What's the difference in those three? The difference between the generations, it's significant. So I was raised in the Deep South yeah. during segregation. I know many of the codes. 
I know the language. I know the body signs. When you've been steeped in that world, you develop the second sense of it. <laughs> My associate producer, Janae Woods Weber, who is biracial, raised in a largely white town in Massachusetts, doesn't have that second sense. So she approaches things in a much more open, egalitarian way. And uh, when we were in Ferris Street, there was an exchange with one of the shop owners. And it was clear to me that her pleasantness about this situation and her attempts to create a really lovely conversation were not working because she couldn't read his body language. Mm. He did not want to go there. He was a little resistant. And he found her discussion somewhat naive. The third generation on the trip, uh, who was Kemi Aladesui, who was born in London, raised in Nigeria, and emigrated to America, um, I sometimes think that it may have looked like drama to her as she tried to figure out what was going on. I think she saw it through a lens of people talking, not realizing that people actually had different life experiences that sometimes were not blending as smoothly as they could have. During the trip, we found that several people would stop us when we were doing an interview with them and would say to me, where are you from? And I would say, the Florida Pennant, yeah, you, you sound just like my uncle. Or you sound just like somebody else in my family. They never said that about Janae or Kimmy. Yeah. And that's because I come from a different world. I think that how we took in some of the things that happened emotionally mm. were different. I could let them sort of wash off my back because I knew that it was probably, in the scheme of things, quite meaningless. <laughs> Sometimes Janae would see them as really inappropriate actions. And Kemi, I think, was sort of looking at it, wondering what was actually happening. Yeah. And so part of my job as the lead on this production was to make sure that we all talked about it. So we often, between locations, we would record our conversations about mm. what, what we were thinking about, how we were feeling about this. And that was very useful because I think that sharing gave us a deeper understanding of each other. And for me, it gave me an ability to, to write the book in a way that goes across those generations. It's interesting, among the questions that you say you are asking yourselves with your companions there on this journey, there, there are two that I wanted to ask about and, and maybe even come back to later in the conversation. The first one is this one. Is it possible for us today to feel what black people felt traveling during segregation? Did, what did you find? Could you convey to Janae or Kemi that that sense at all? How did you answer that question as you were as you were going along your journey? I don't think I answered that question, but I think a story told to us by Hank Sanders in Selma, Alabama, hmm. illustrated the difference. He tells the story that he was attending a civil rights meeting where a white woman was attending, and she lived 20 miles north. When I got ready to leave, they asked me, uh, some of the black people asked me if I would drop her off at a town 20 miles up. The, the very first thing that crossed my mind, I said, that's enough to get me killed. And But I, I thought about it and I said, well, otherwise they got to drive 40 miles. They got to drive the 20 miles up and the 20 miles back. And, and, and against my better, better judgment, I decided to go ahead and, and take her. She gets in the car, they pull out. A truck that, as he says, you know has a gun rack in the back, yeah. pulls up behind them. I uh, 
made sure that I didn't drive too fast or too slow. And the truck kept following me, and it would get right up on me. So I, I would speed up, and it would speed up. Then I'd slow down, it would slow down. And finally, when I slowed down enough, the, the truck pulled uh, up uh, uh, around me uh, on, on, the, on, on the side of me, and I just knew that we were going to get shot. Here's a black man and a white woman in a car, and that goes against all of the norms of that part of the world. And, uh, and then the truck pushed on ahead and, and, and drove on off. And then he has to think, are they setting a trap for me? Do I go forward or do I wait? We just kept driving, but that fear is still so great. At the very end of that conversation, I asked him, is that a form of terrorism? He said, yes. He said, many people wouldn't see it that way. But for him, it felt like terrorism, that somebody was basically threatening him. I think that story illustrates the difference. Back then, you had heard of things happening to people on the road. You knew people personally to whom some of these things had happened. All of that was in you when you and your family took out on the road. Mm. Today, you have a different sense of awareness because that oppression isn't as great and society doesn't give such privilege to people, white people, to stop you anytime they want to, the way they could in many Southern places in those days. So I think today, while we can have anxiety about driving, that sort of terrorism of that time feels less present Mm. than it would have a long ago. Here's the other question you asked yourself. You asked yourselves whether, as you put it in the book, whether the fears created by the incidents caused by driving while black ever go away, which is something like saying, how long does this kind of cumulative trauma, how long does that last? Did you get a sense of that on your journey? The most amazing thing is that a lot of people who experienced this trauma did not let it cripple them, Mm. did not let it hinder them. Instead, they turned it into wisdom that they pass on to the next generation. So yes, the memory of the incident remains. Yes, they can talk about the horror of it. But as they walk through their day-to-day lives, what they have made a very conscious decision about, I believe, is to carry only the wisdom forth and to share that wisdom so that what they've experienced won't happen again. And that's grace. Mm. That's grace to be able to release yourself from these events, to be aware of the dynamics that that were in that situation, to recognize when they are occurring again, sometimes in more blatant ways, but usually in more subtle ways, to recognize how to remove yourself from that situation, shake your head, or as my grandmother used to say, "Mm -mm," and walk forward with only the wisdom. That's what I think African-Americans have chosen to do. Does that make you think of Frank Figures, of Jackson? Oh, Frank was like talking to my uncle's son. (laughs) That was probably the the most difficult of all the interviews I did because of his cadence and his voice. Uh, I really struggled emotionally because he spoke like my uncle. And there was an intentionality to his conversations. He wanted you to get the message. That was his objective. And I found the grace with which he delivered that message. Perhaps from 1890, here in Mississippi, up until 1960, every day people woke up, is this going to be the day? But they, whether it was going to be the day or not, 
people say, either consciously or unconsciously, I'm going to do what I can with what I have, where I am, in order to make a better life and a fair deal. I thought of Frank figures then, I think of Frank figures now. I think an important part of the conversation that you had with Frank was to underline how important um, this um, the 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 Green Book was for was laid laid the groundwork for this sense of activism, and he he tells this story about how Frank was um, hearing this piece of music. Please send me someone to love. And he talks about how the lyric moved him. And he realized that it wasn't about romantic love. It was about a prayer. Heaven, please send to all mankind Understanding and peace in mind But if it's not Will you talk about this moment, Frank, coming out of this funeral service? Oh, yes. Frank was between funeral services, actually. He had gone from one and was on his way to another. And so he was in a reflective mood and thinking about his friend. And he heard this song. And this song was played constantly. People loved it. And I could see, but coming out of that church, headed to the other church, I discovered the lyric to the song. It's a prayer. It has little to do with bumping and grinding in love as it does with conditions. Show the world how to get along. Peace will enter when the hate is gone. So you're not asking for physical love. You're asking for someone to recognize your humanity, somebody to see you as a person, a full person, entitled to not just love, but the full rights of citizenship in America, everything promised by the Constitution. It is such a beautiful sentiment. I actually can't listen to that song anymore and hear it the same way. Frank changed me. Frank forever changed me, especially my relationship with that song. And it has become something that I share with younger people when they're frustrated by what's happening in America today, when they see news reports and things that upset them. The struggle continues today. But people should realize, you said wisdom, that wake up every day, do what you can with what you have, where you are, in order to bring about a better life and a fair deal for people. To me, I detected this kind of underlying theme about cadence and body language and accent. And I mean, you, for example, mentioned growing up in the rural segregated South, you worshipped in a Baptist church. And you mentioned how there were times in the journey, I wonder maybe with Frank, when a person's story you say would connect with yours and that there was something in their voice or maybe it was their accent, or maybe it was you know the, the cadence, or all maybe all of those things. And you say it was like hearing a spiritual. And yes. this is how you put it in the book, that you could feel the music. W- w- what do you mean? Ooh, I have to compose myself to talk about this. Uh, I was raised deeply in the Baptist church. And what I loved about it was the music. I loved the way the music made the people feel. At first, it was outside of me. And I was watching them singing these songs in church every Sunday. And it was like watching something happening to them, 
some joy overcoming them, some relief from the pressures of the day, some relief from the pressures of the life, some manifestation of future hope. And then around, I guess probably when I was about nine or 10, I began to feel the music. (laughs) And I discovered that I had virtually no defense against the music, that it would make me cry. Even today there are songs I cannot hear without crying. And so when I was hearing Frank, when I was talking to Hank Sanders, uh, it was almost like their voices were passing through me and getting to the essence of who I am. Uh, When Hank tells the story about how his family was really, really poor and during one of the periods when things were really poor with his family, his mother would get all of the children in the living room and they only had one chair. And she would gather all of them together and she would say, things are always hard with this poor family. And then she would pause and she would say, but don't y'all worry. I'm at my best when things are hard. I thought about when we grew up and when we didn't have enough money, how we would go fishing at the river down the road and catch fish before dinner or uh, if we had some crop left in the in the garden in the back, we'd go and get those. Uh, I thought about all those things and the types of resilience it took and how that was a part of the world that I grew up that I carry forward to this day. I still have no resistance to gospel music. I absolutely adore it. And often during the writing of the book, I would listen to songs because I needed to be in touch with that emotion. Uh, The one that comes immediately to mind now is uh, Donnie McClurkill's uh, song called We Fall Down But We Get Up. A saint is just a sinner who fell down and got up. And I often think about that, that all of these people started out with nothing, but they got up Mm -hmm. and they had things that tripped them up along the way, but they got up. And they kept moving forward. You mentioned how at some of these moments along the journey that you would um, – just like a moment ago, you had to kind of compose yourself to, to keep this as – you, as you say in the book – this professional demeanor because you didn't have an emotional barrier against what, what they were saying. Um, what did this journey take out of you I guess in that sense? Ooh, what did it take out of me? I don't think the journey took anything out of me. Mm. The journey gave me an incredible gift. (laughs) And I don't say this in any romantic or uh, saccharine kind of way. I think that it enabled me to first look back at my life and to understand parts of my life in this black community in the South that I didn't fully understand. Like, why did people in the community hide their cars behind the house or park them behind the house? I never thought of the fact until Hezekiah mentioned it, that if you had a nice car and a white person saw it, there might be trouble. I just thought my relatives just were quirky that way. Yeah. Um, so I gained a lot of insights about where I grew up and the behavior of the people that uh, I knew. I gained a lot of understanding of what these people I interviewed, the ones who agreed to sit down with me and Janae for these conversations Mm. because we didn't have questions in front of us when we did the interviews. That was my requirement. The interviews had to listen to the people and our questions 
had to come organically out of what they were saying. We may have an idea in our mind of where we want to go, but we had to listen to the people. And because we were fully present, they gave us this wisdom about how black people survived this difficult time. The role of humor in this time, Mm. the role of the community in helping to sustain people and keep them safe, and the dynamics within their own families that they're passing on from one generation to the next generation about living prosperously and optimistically in America in the face of situations that clearly echo the past that makes you sit there in the evenings as you're watching the evening news or listening to the radio and shake your head and recall the statement, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But yet you have children, you have nieces and nephews, and you don't want them to be trapped by this. You want them to feel the optimism, the future, the possibilities of the American dream. And I think I was given an incredible insight and a fuller understanding of that world that I did not have before this trip. So I don't think the trip took anything out of me, even when I had to walk out of that Frank Figures interview, because I knew I was going to cry. Those were tears of connecting so deeply that I would never forget him. What, what, what gift did that, that you meet somebody you've never met before, but they gave you a part of themselves that will live in you for as long as you're alive? Delvin Hall. His new book is Driving the Green Book, A Road Trip Through the Living History of Black Resistance. If you want to hear some of the stories he tells in the book, you should check out his podcast he produced a few years ago. It's called Driving the Green Book. We put a link to it on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking to the writer and broadcaster Alvin Hall about his new book where he drives the Green Book. It was a travel guide used by African Americans in the period of segregation in this country. And Hall wanted to know what was left of the businesses in the Green Book, and he wanted to talk to the people who used it as a way to visit family and get back safely. It's called Driving the Green Book. Alvin Hall, let's let's talk about the 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 Green Book itself. So just some basics. I think we should remind people um, about the so-called Negro Motorist Green Book. It was created by Victor Hugo Green. You write about this in the book. He was a letter carrier for, a, for, the, for the post office, I guess, in New Jersey. We, we don't know much about him, though. As you say, he must have been charming, we think, impressive, had a lot of energy and drive. You describe him as, as an innovator. Um, and we're not even sure really how he came up with the idea, but you think he was inspired by his own experiences. What do we know about about um, about Victor? And, and maybe we should mention Alma, too, because that's a critical part of the story. Yes. Oh, yes. We don't know much about Victor. We know, as you said, that he was a postman in Hackensack, New Jersey. We know that he and Alma got married in, in Brooklyn. Um, We know that uh, they took trips to Virginia, Richmond, to visit her relatives along the way they had frustration. They lived in Harlem on St. Nicholas Avenue, and they had a group of friends. And we ascertained that from those friends, they must have gathered other information about what it was like to travel at that time. And Alma's brother was a jazz musician. 
So he was on the road, and for a while, Victor managed him. So I'm sure that Alma's brother brought back stories from the road. I think what's really clear about Victor Hugo Green is that he was in Harlem at a time when that sort of creative energy was surging through every aspect, music, Mm. literature, and he had an idea, and the idea was compelling. And the energy from the community led him to start the idea and to want to see it grow. And it's a form of activism. Dr. Bam at Dillard uh, University in New Orleans said that at some point, black people say to themselves, I'm not going to take this sitting down. I'm going to try to figure out a way around these barriers. And I think for Victor, this was both an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take it anymore. And resilience saying, I'm going to figure out a way around this. I was really struck by you include um, something that Victor himself had written in an in introduction to one of the editions of the guide. This was from the 1949 edition. And I was really drawn to the the part where he writes – there will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. That is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. And then he mentions how it will be a great day to be able to suspend it. But until then, you know, we, as he says, we shall continue to publish this information for your convenience each year. And I think you really do get that sense of activism, um, in in, and, in that and belief in change, yeah, and belief in change. Yeah. He really did believe that if the laws were changed, if the races had more opportunities to interact on beaches in more casual settings, on holidays in the Grand Canyon, visiting Mount Rushmore, mm. uh, on the New England beaches, that a lot of the problems would no longer exist. But there were two unknown elements to Victor when he made that wish. (laughs) Number one was the U.S. government's policies for mortgage lending and other policies. The government seemed to want it to maintain the separation of the races. Certainly at a state level, that was true. At the national level, you look at the federal lending policies for that period of time, the way the federal highway system was routed during that period of time. And you can see that the government wasn't fully embracing this, although the law changed. I think the second part that Victor missed was that though the laws may change, hearts and minds change much, much more slowly, sometimes not at all. This became clear when we talked to Jan Miles, who publishes the post-racial green book, in which she lists all the sort of racial atrocities that are occurring in America, mass incarcerations, stops along the road, uh, disappearances of black people. And she made a point that when we look at all of these horrible pictures from the civil rights movement when integration was trying to be implemented and how white people reacted violently, violently, in often truly disgusting and mean, unbelievable ways, she said, that was during my grandmother's lifetime. Yeah. And I am that woman's granddaughter. Think about it. Those people in those pictures, 
those people in those videos had children and their children had children who would be the age of Jan Miles. Hmm. Did their hearts and minds change when the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed? Have their hearts and minds changed today? You know, there's a, another part that uh, hadn't occurred to me. You say that there are still remnants of these tactics, like vestigial you know, remnants of these strategies that black people had for traveling that still exist. There were a few that I wanted to ask you about. One, um, it, you, you mentioned, for example, um, that Jesse Turner Jr. had this lesson about asking people if they had a restroom at a service station. Yeah. Like that was one of those. Say something about that. I found that fascinating. Driving on the road meant that you had to get services at locations, and sometimes you'd have to endure degradation to get the services that you wanted. A lot of black people said, I'm not going to put up with this. So you drive up to a service station and say, may we use your restroom? And if they said, well, we don't have one, well, you just say, well, thank you, and drive on to the next station, because why would you want to spend your money your hard-earned money, at a place that wouldn't let you use the bathroom. So this became something that many black people did because they did not want to use their hard-earned money to support white supremacists or discrimination ideas. They didn't want to do that. Another one was leaving before the sunrise. (laughs) This is still pervasive among many black people. (laughs) Why? Because in the old days, you'd want to get on the road so that you could be fully much in your journey and maybe through some towns where you knew the town's people and the police would be asleep overnight and get to a location where there was less likelihood of things happening to you. And you want to get to your destination before sundown because you were much more vulnerable at night when there were no witnesses to what could happen to you on the road. So there were all these strategies that literally, and I think Dr. Noel Trent Mm. at the National Civil Rights Museum talks about this in the podcast, that have been passed down generationally to help black people survive. Alvin Hall, his new book is Driving the Green Book, a road trip through the living history of black resistance. He also produced a podcast you should check out. It's called Driving the Green Book. We'll put a link to it on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Alvin Hall is with us today talking about his road trip using a travel guide called The Green Book. The guide listed places that would serve black customers during the era of segregation and Jim Crow, like gas stations and garages and restaurants. Hall wanted to meet the people who used The Green Book or who owned businesses in it. And he talks about the questions he kept coming back to along the way. What was it like to drive in those days and do those fears ever go away? You write about how when you started out on the journey, you were in some ways kind of like any traveler today. You put your destination into a navigation app and then you get going. But then you say as you went along, things would change. You started to pay attention to how 
as you put it in the book, how forests and these secondary roads would have been seen by travelers in a different time. But you also mention how you were asking yourselves questions throughout, but the one thing you never talked about, you say, with your travel companions was what you describe as this quiet concern about being three black people driving a nice SUV through the southern United States. Explain that. that. Explain that part. Oh, wow. Before we started this trip, I was very concerned about the fact that we would be on the road for 12 days driving a nice SUV going south. I thought about bringing this up with Janae and Kemi, but I thought sometimes it's better just to let things be and see what happens. But it was always a concern, I think, for us. I know Janae was highly sensitive to it because she elected to drive a lot of the trip because she recognized that if we got stopped and I was behind the wheel, it might take a different tone with a police official. So she drove a lot of the trip. And as we went down these roads, as we went off the main road using GPS, which was often route us to some two-lane roads, we wondered what it would be like to be on those roads Mm. when you didn't have air conditioning, you were driving down the road with all the windows down, there are nothing but fields, there are no trees. What if a local policeman drove past you going in the opposite direction, didn't like your car, didn't like all the black people sitting in this car, needed something to amuse himself that day, or just was in a bad mood and turned around and stopped you in one of these places? When you're on these long stretches of road, You can't help but think about that. What would happen then? And what would happen today? I think all of us had grace and skills and good manners that could have protected us. Luckily, we didn't have to use those. Alvin, let me ask you finally. This question, among the other questions that you were asking, came up. It was one of the questions that you would put to people along the way. Is a guide like the Green Book, is that needed today? What did people say? And what do you think? Where did you come down? There are three answers to that question. Hmm. The older generation said, without even having to intake a breath, no, I pay taxes. My father, my son, my brother, my sister fought for this country in war. We will not go back to a time where we are limited in our participation in the American dream, where our rights are made more narrow. We will not go back to that. A younger generation sees it differently. They see the Green Book as a new entity, not as a book about safe harbors, but as a marketing tool. A guide to local businesses. So if you want to shop black, if you want to support black businesses when you travel or in your own community, here is a list that you can use to help those businesses. Forbes magazine has such a list looking at national businesses where people can buy products from. But I think it was the artist Derek Adams who summarized the younger generation's aspect of the need for a green book-like idea. Young people want to go to a place that has, quote, their vibe. Hmm. 
That means they don't have to worry about bad treatment when they're getting checked into the hotel. They don't have to worry about somebody thinking they're loud when they're not being loud. They don't have to worry about people giving them the side eye when they walk into the bar. That's what they're talking about. So I think the younger generation sees the idea of the Green Book as both a marketing tool, but also as a comfort level. You know where there's been problems, so you know places to avoid, so you won't have those problems. So you ask me, where do I come out on this, having done this 2,000-mile trip and done a lot of interviews and talked to a lot of people since that time? I feel that sharing information about where people have bad experiences based on race in America is really important. Despite the vast number of changes that have occurred here and the improvements, still you can encounter something driving while black, walking while black, picnicking while black, doing anything while black. You never know. And can I say one more thing? Yes, of course. You mind? Okay. No, not at all. I can honestly say I've come away from the road trip and the process of creating the podcast and writing the book with a, an amazing understanding of black resilience and how humor and grace exist in the community. We often hear the horror stories, but within the black community, there is, and it's strong there today, this positivism, this sense that we can overcome this. We will overcome this. And maybe not all of America will embrace it at one time, but if we live long enough and we work hard enough, people will eventually change and see the truth. Alvin Hall, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Alvin Hall, his new book is Driving the Green Book, a road trip through the living history of black resistance. He also produced a podcast series about his road trip. You can find links to it on our website, RadioWest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 